Yeah, before I answer that question, I just wanted to ask you a question. I know that in your investigations and figuring out this world for your own work, I know that you sought advice from several people and, you know, some people push back on you charging money for, for things. But let me ask you this, were any of those people that gave you that input, were they full-time ministry people? Hello there, I'm Travis Albritton, and you're listening to Ministry Startup, the podcast about what it's like to start a ministry from scratch. In season one, we're going behind the scenes of my new online teaching ministry, which I'm pretty excited about. You're listening to episode three of this story, so if you're just now jumping in, I highly recommend starting back at episode one. Previously on Ministry Startup, I pitched my new ministry idea to my amazing wife, Andrea, including the price tag to get it off the ground. And, and at first, like the, the number you gave me, I, f- I feel like I remember it being like $2,000 that you want to yeah. put into this website. Do you remember when I said, it's not going to, it's actually not going to be $2,000. It actually needs to be $4,000. I may have blocked it out. (laughs) The excitement I felt after that moment was very short-lived, as I found out very quickly this was not going to be as easy as I initially thought. Now, whenever you start something new, one of the first things you'll notice is how incredibly vulnerable you feel. When you're just doing your own thing, minding your own business, nobody knows who you are. And nobody particularly cares what you do. But as soon as you put yourself out there as someone with something to say, inevitably, people will begin to share their opinion of you. And if you've ever read the comments under a YouTube video, you'll know those comments don't always have the most uplifting tone. Wow, way to overcomplicate it. Literally, the only issue Christians have with serving is their love for ignorant consumerism and short-term gains. But hey, way to monetize spirituality. Nothing more American than that. I can't believe you're talking about ROI as it pertains to serving in a community. If you're serving for return on investment, then you're treating the act like a business transaction and are no better than the money lenders Jesus was pissed at. Give freely, expect no return. True fulfillment doesn't require compensation. That was a comment I got on one of my Facebook videos. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that this person has a very low opinion of me. My initial reaction? Who do you think you are? What gives you the right to think these things about me? Do you even know me? Do you know anything about me? About who I am? About what's important to me? About why I'm doing this in the first place? So basically what you're saying is I'm just a greedy sleazebag who wants nothing but to exploit people for my own personal gain. Is that, is that what you're saying? So as much as I wanted to justify myself, I didn't reply to his comment. But it wasn't just the comment itself that bothered me. What really stung was that this was my brother in Christ saying these things. This is someone who, I hope at least, is striving to live a life that is pleasing to God. 
Now, I hoped that he would be an outlier, someone having a bad day who just had a weak moment and didn't think about what they said before they said it. Surely people will recognize that what I'm doing is good and how much I genuinely want to help people, and they won't be so quick to judge. Yeah, that's not how the internet works. This became a trend. I would put something out to try and help people, and regardless of whether it was free or not, I would immediately get blowback from the Christian community. But you know what? I get it. I totally understand why they're leaving the comments they're leaving. In one word, televangelists. But one thing these Christian shows all have in common is that in the end, they always hit you up for some cash. Now, some do it in a pious spiritual way. As a special challenge, please prayerfully consider a gift of $1,200 or more. But not everyone is as prayerfully considered as those guys are. The master of the grab for cash would have to be this guy, our favorite, Mike Murdoch. A lady came up to me one night and she said, my ex-husband has not paid child support in 15 years. I said, sow a seed for $58 just as a covenant between you and God. Not trying to buy a miracle. That's absurd. But give God a seed of your faith, $58. It's not about money at all. It's about planting seed. I tell you what, planting a seed in Mike's bank account really pays off. Less than 30 days, that ex-husband wrote her a check and mailed it for $65,000. Whoa. That's amazing. Yeah. But surely you can't expect that to happen every time. Expect a harvest. <laughs> expect it. Mm. Expect it. Maybe you can, yeah. Okay, so it seems like all you've got to do is give Mike 58 bucks and all kinds of miracles are going to happen. That sounds mm. like crap to me. No, that's not. Look, he even gave an ironclad guarantee. If what I have said about sowing and reaping is just for Mike Murdoch's personal gain, may a curse be on me and my ministry, and may my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. See, the man is prepared to cleave his own tongue, Julian. That's good enough for me. So I sent off my $58 to Mike, but amazingly, no miracles. Who would have thought? But the good news is that Mike has come up with an even more foolproof way of prompting miracles. God spoke to me and said, tell them about the miracle of the $1,000 seed. Sounds great. Now, those two guys do a pretty good job of poking fun at what is really a serious situation. Now, it's pretty obvious that these televangelists are selling fake promises in exchange for money, often at the expense of desperate people just looking for a miracle. But what separates me from them? How is asking someone to buy my online course not the same thing that they're doing? So convincing strangers that I'm not trying to rip them off was going to take some more work. But it wasn't just people I didn't know who were opposing me. I started getting pushback from people that knew me, close friends that I'd worked alongside doing ministry together. And I realized that I wasn't just trying to redefine what the full-time ministry looks like for me. I was trying to redirect 1,700 years of momentum. For, you know, a good 15, 1600 years, we've been in a clergy laity model and people still look at people in ministry like they're extra spiritual, like they've got some special calling by God and 
I'm not saying they don't, but I just view it as every Christian has a calling to use their gifts to serve. We've somehow elevated clergy as a service role above every other role. And I don't think that's right. It's just a different role. I had reached out to Jamie just to get some more perspective on this whole thing. And his comment about the clergy and the laity got me to thinking, what is behind all of this? So I started digging into the history of the church and found some really interesting stuff. After the apostles and the early church fathers passed away, it didn't take long for the Christians of the day to turn the church towards a more structured approach. And over the course of a couple hundred years, the church slowly made its way back to the temple model that we see in the Old Testament. Mainly that there's a priesthood. There's a group of people that are set aside, that are like professional Christians. And then there's everyone else. And this became further cemented into place in the 4th century, when the church became accepted by the Roman government. And being a minister became a lucrative career, complete with tax exemptions. And during that time, the divide between the clergy and the laity, the professional Christians and the regular Christians, only grew wider until it evolved into something completely unrecognizable to the first century church. Now, you want your church to hire someone qualified to do the thing that you're hiring them to do. But what happens is the pastor, the minister, the evangelist, is seen as someone who is supernaturally spiritual, that they have some special direct calling from God to do what they're doing. And that's true. But the implication is that if you aren't one of those individuals, then you aren't spiritual enough or called by God enough to be worthy of financial support. And it's these individuals, Christians, that are paid to be in the ministry that are telling me that I should offer everything for free. Jamie didn't mince any words when he found out I was catching flack from some of the full-time ministers I had asked for advice. I know that in your investigations and figuring out this world for your own work, I know that you sought advice from several people and, you know, some people push back on you charging money for, for things. But let me ask you this, were any of those people that gave you that input, were they full-time ministry people? They, yes, they were. So here's what's so bizarre about that. You had people being paid to help Christians grow, telling you, well, you shouldn't really charge people to help them grow. They're doing the same thing, but they don't, it's just that they don't connect that. Some of these guys, they just can't think differently because they've been in this world for so long. Um, but they're doing the very same thing. It's like, you know, because the challenge could be like, well, bro, then why don't you preach for free? Like, hey, uh, Jamie in Jacksonville's doing it. How come you're not doing it? Right? Like, that would be so wrong to say to somebody. Mm-hmm. And so why is it any less wrong for them to be like, well, yeah, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't charge for that. When they're charging for, they're charging for what they give. Now, most preachers are going to say, well, I mean, no, I mean, God's called me to do this. And then they're insinuating that God's not called you to do that. So by selling 
courses online, I was going directly against the grain. I was trying to break down the institution of how church is set up and democratize spiritual expertise to the individual people that actually have it, not just to those who have the right credentials. And this new way of thinking about what it means to be in the full-time ministry, it was even hard for some ministers to comprehend as a hypothetical idea. I believe if the church has any chance of reaching its full potential, we need to fundamentally shift the way we think about these ministers. And it needs to change in the exact people who benefit the most from the way things are currently done. If I'm going to stand on solid ground when I ask people to pay for my courses and feel good about it, I need to understand and develop a conviction about what the Bible says about this. What does God think about charging money in exchange for spiritual help? Is he for it? Is he against it? Ironically, it's Paul, the apostle who supported himself making tents, that speaks directly to this issue in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he asks the church in Corinth a series of rhetorical questions. Questions like, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? The answer to these questions? Nobody. No one would serve as a soldier at their own expense. No one would own a vineyard and not eat some grapes. And no one who had a flock would not drink some of the milk. It's a preposterous thing to ask. Would you go to work for free? Would you show up at your job for 40 hours a week if they didn't pay you? Of course not. You agreed to invest your time to help your company in exchange for a salary. This is essentially what Paul is saying. And two verses in particular stand out. In verse 11, Paul writes, If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? And in verse 14, the Lord has commanded those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So Paul makes it clear it's not wrong to expect financial support in exchange for my time and energy. So with this newfound reassurance, I felt good about what I was doing again. It was a relief to know that I'm not a bad person after all. And while there will always be people trying to discourage you from trying new things, I could at least feel secure in the fact that God was not one of those people. But I still needed to figure out how to move forward. How do I present myself knowing that I will encounter opposition from the very people I'm trying to help? What are some principles that I can go by to know that I'm not only helping people, but doing it in a way that's going to honor and glorify God? In studying out the scriptures, two things jumped out. Number one is this idea of balanced scales. Now, in the Old Testament, currency exchange was a little different than it is today. They didn't have credit cards. They didn't have ATMs. They didn't have cash. They literally put things on a scale and weighed them. So you would put two pounds of something on one side, and the other person would put two pounds of something on the other, 
and when it balanced out, that was a fair transaction. There are some other details into how that worked, but that's basically the gist of it. But if you were deceitful, you could rig the scale to not be truthful about how much something weighed. And you could rip other people off in the process and take advantage of them. And God spoke specifically against this multiple times, saying you will have balanced scales, meaning you will be honest and transparent about your interactions with each other. And so for me moving forward, I need to be super careful that I'm really honest and transparent about what I'm doing, that I don't make empty promises that I can't keep or lead people astray where they think that I'm offering something different than I actually am or offering something more than I actually am just to get them to buy it. The second principle is that I need to leave the edges of my crops unharvested. Now in the Old Testament, God commanded that anyone who had a farm not harvest the edge of their crop. And this was a way for the people of Israel that had the means to support themselves to help those that didn't. That the immigrant, the homeless, the social outcast would not go hungry because they could eat from the food that was left over by the farmer. And so in my teaching ministry, I need to leave room for generosity. That while it's within my rights to expect payment for my work, it's also my responsibility to take care of those who don't have the means or the ability to buy what I'm offering. Jamie strongly agreed with me on this one. I think for the person who the only Christian service they do is they have to be compensated financially for it. Yeah. Then I'm suspect of that person, but, and I think, but when they are living as a Christian and then they have this side ministry that they are doing, uh, that's kind of over and above what the average person, average Christian would do then. And they're offering real value. That's the thing. And they're, they're really helping people out. Then this is a biblical concept. You are worth your, your wages. If I only help the people that can afford it, then I am just as bad as those prosperity preachers. But it's also not wrong to ask the people that can't afford it to support me. So what are my final thoughts on all this? Well, everyone experiences obstacles. It's unreasonable to think that my ministry will be any different than the ministries that have gone before me. And really thinking about it, if I faced no opposition, then I'd have to wonder if what I'm doing is actually serving God. If no one sees my ministry as a threat, or if the world accepts it as it is, then I have to second guess whether I'm actually making the impact that I think that I am. Now, I thought that once I cleared this hurdle, I'd be all clear for at least a little while. I wasn't going to let anything get me off track from doing what God was clearly calling me to do. But it's not always the obvious things that trip you up. Quite often, it's the things that lurk beneath the surface, the snake in the grass creeping up on you unnoticed. In all of the excitement that comes with starting something new, I had started to push other priorities to the side. Important things. Like my wife. She wasn't exactly fired up about that. How do I strike the right balance between working hard for God and not neglecting my wife? That's coming up on the next episode of Ministry Startup.
On the next episode of Ministry Startup, I fall into a classic trap that so many ambitious men and women fall into. So I made a boo-boo. I made the classic spend all kinds of time on the thing that you're excited about and forget that you have other, <laughs> other priorities in life. I believe that the church's best days are yet to come. And I believe that it's ordinary Christians doing extraordinary things that will get us there. If you are enjoying this podcast, you can help me reach more people by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can find out more about Ministry Startup by going to my website, ministrystartup.com. The theme song for this podcast was written and performed by Flow Up. You can find more of his music on his Facebook page, Flow Up 623. Other music from this episode was written and performed by Michael Parallax. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon on the next episode of Ministry Startup. Ministry Startup.